happen. All right, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so uh, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now I want to stop reading right there, and I want to uh, go back to verse 1 and 2, and I want to kind of dig in to uh, an issue that uh, is here. He says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I want to uh, emphasize and really just kind of mine into what does that mean? What does it mean to continue in sin? Uh, verse 2 talks about living in sin. How, are, how, are, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This idea of continuing in sin and living in sin, is there a difference between that and something else? Is that, is that something different? What does the Bible have to say about this issue of continuing in sin? Uh, and I want to look at that tonight. And I think it'll be a profitable study. So I want you to just stay with me. And I don't really have a good title. I think we're just going to borrow the question from verse uh, number one. So I'm going to use this as a title. We'll just ask the question tonight, shall we continue in sin? And that'll just be our question for tonight that we'll dig into. Shall we continue in sin? Now, I want to remind you that the issue at hand uh, is the relationship between grace and sanctification. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at the fact that Paul said in verse 20 of chapter 5, remember he said that, 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 that grace, where sin abound, grace did much more abound, right? So somebody that would want to abuse grace, they would say, well, if the more you sin, the more God gives grace, then obviously that means it doesn't matter how you live. And even you could take it to the extreme, and some have, saying that, well, the more you sin, the more God gives grace. And the more God gives grace, the more glory He gets, right? He shows that He's gracious. So really, if you think about it, then the more that you sin, the more glory God gets out of that. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? That doesn't even make sense. And I'm not going to rehash all that that we talked about last week. But Paul is defending against that line of of objection against the grace of God. Paul is preaching grace. You are saved. You don't have to do anything. There are no works that are added. Uh, looks like that thief on the cross we looked at Sunday morning. He was, I mean, he couldn't do anything at all. He gets saved purely by the grace of God. That's how you got saved. That's how I got saved. It's purely the grace of God. I didn't work to get it. I'm not working to keep it, okay? Uh, that is our justification. It is by grace through faith. We put our faith in Jesus and His good grace justifies us and saves us, right? So if it's not by works, some would object and say, well, you know, then if just God giving it to you, then it doesn't matter how you live. 
And people that believe in eternal security get accused of that all the time, right? They say, well, you believe once you're saved, you're always saved. You can live however you want to, right? People can just get saved and live however you want to. Well, that's not a good, um, uh, that's not a good uh, uh, version of grace. In fact, that's a perversion of grace is what that is. And that's the argument Paul is making. This is not so. The grace of God does not free us to sin. The grace of God frees us from sin. And Titus chapter 2, right? Paul told Titus, he said uh, that the grace of God which hath appeared unto all men, bring, which brings salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us, the denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. The grace of God teaches us to live right. It doesn't give us license to live wrong. We looked at Jude, what Jude had to say about those and these apostates in these last days. And one of the marks is what? They take the grace of God and they turn it into lasciviousness, looseness, wantonness. Uh, uh, where you say, well, God is just, He's a gracious God. We don't, have to, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to live right. We can live how we want to because grace, 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 grace. That's a cheap grace. That's, not the, that's, not, that's an imitation. That is not the real thing. That's grace made in China. Somebody say amen right there. That ain't, that's not made in the USA kind of grace. All right, That's not the real deal. That's knockoff grace. All right, The real deal, uh, not only... Not only does the real grace save you, but then the real grace changes you. See, the, the, pervert, the misunderstanding about grace is that grace and justification is only a, 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 an announcement of uh, uh, an announcement and a, a pronouncement of, uh, of uh, a declaration that you have been made right in the sight of God. Just a declaration of uh, your righteousness. But grace does not just declare us righteous, but then it activates something inside of us. It changes. It's not just a declaration, but it is a, it's a transformation is what it is. It transforms us. How many of you know that when you get saved, you're not who you used to be? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You're not what you used to be, okay? And I think it was John Newton, man wrote Amazing Grace. He, he said a lot more eloquently than I'm about to quote it, but he said something to this effect that I, I'm not all that I ought to be and I'm not all that I hope to be, but I'm not what I used to be, all right? And isn't that, isn't that where we're living at right now? Romans 6, 7, 8 deal with, that, with those issues right there. Um, we're not what we ought to be. Romans 7 is all about the struggle. Does anybody know about the struggle between the flesh and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, we, just because you get saved, I mean, you've, you, know, you quit struggling with those things. But also we know this. We know this is a reality. And this is what Paul is saying in these verses we just read. This is a reality. Whether you believe it or not, it is the truth that when you get saved, you're different. There's something. Your relationship with sin has drastically changed. Not what it used to be. Not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. And how has it all changed? Well, you're going to have to give me a couple weeks to flesh it all out. But, um, or we could just stay here all night. I mean, whatever y'all want to do, I'll let, I'll let you pick. But, but uh, yeah, thanks. But Paul talks about this issue of continuing in sin. Do you see that in verse 1 and verse 2? Living in sin. So Paul's argument is, that, is this. And here's what he's launching into in our verse, our verses, our text. He said that it's impossible for a person that has truly experienced the grace of God to continue and live in sin. 
Now, what does that mean? I mean? That raises up all time. You say something like that, there's a million questions. In fact, it may raise more questions than it does answers. And some of these, you're going to have to just be patient. We've got to get through chapter 7 and we've got to get through chapter 8. Some of these questions are only answered when we get through all these things. And honestly, and a lot of these things are just hard to be resolved. You know, there's things in the Bible that A is true and B is true, and sometimes it's just hard to resolve A and B in every single situation. But when questions go through our mind like, uh, does that mean saved people don't sin? Well, I think we know the answer to that. I wish sinless perfection were true, don't you? Does that mean that can saved people struggle with sin? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So read Romans chapter 7. We'll get to all that. I think one thing that really hinders a lot of people, and maybe even me personally sometimes, is that I, I think about I know people. I know people personally that have made professions of salvation, don't you? But there has been no fruit in their life at all, no change. In fact, they seem to enjoy living in sin. And you look at those people and you say, but I thought they got saved. And then here's what's going on. You see, what we, what we have to do is we got to make up our mind that we believe the Bible over anything even our own personal experiences, even our own personal experiences, well, my granddaughter or my, or my, my, my dad or my, my cousin or my uncle or whatever, these are personal things to us. Some, some of them have passed away and, and the only hope that we have is that maybe they made this little teeny tiny profession somewhere. They never lived it. They, 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 they lived in sin. They, they never darkened the doors of the church. They drank like a fish. They, they ran around town doing all kinds of things. But they made a profession. And, and, and when you start showing some of these things in the Bible, people get a little personally affected because you start thinking, well, if that's true, then what about Uncle Fred? You know, where's, where's he at? What about... What about these things? And it gets, it gets real personal. And I'm not minimizing that at all. But what I'm telling you is you're going to have to come to a point in your life where you realize let God be true and every man a liar, even yourself. You cannot filter the Word of God through your personal experiences. You must filter your personal experiences through the Word of God. And the Bible is either right or it's not. You either believe it or you don't. And so when we look at this thing about continuing in sin, what does that mean? I think the, the first question we have to ask when we start getting into this text here is, is, is there a difference? Is, is there a difference between somebody that sins, uh, which is all of us, and somebody that lives in sin and continues in sin? Because it seems to me that Paul puts those two things together. In verse number 1, he, he talks about, shall we continue in sin? And then in verse number 2, he talks about living in sin, live any longer therein. It seems like to me, if you'll let me use those things interchangeably, I believe those are synonymous, right? Continuing in sin is living in sin. I think that, that is right here. That word continue, if you look it up, it just simply means to stay with, to abide to tarry, to persist in, to remain in the same state, to continue. That word live, it just simply means to pass life, right? Uh, the manner of one's living and one's acting. The manner of one's life, to live in this sin. So what does that mean for somebody to continue, for them to just remain in that sin and it never, there's never repentance? There's never conviction, there's never repentance, there's never chastisement in somebody's life. Um, 
And they can just live and live and live and live and seemingly everything's fine and everything's okay. Now listen, I'm not in charge of who's saved and who's not. I want you to know that. I, I, I just, I'm just a Bible preacher, okay? That's all I... I'm not, in char, I'm not in charge of that. I don't get to say who's going up in the rapture and who's staying. I am not... Listen, I, I'm, on the, uh, 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 I'm not on the planning committee for all that stuff, okay? Uh, I'm just on the going up. You know, I'm, just, I'm just a participant, all right? I, I'm not in charge of anything. But the Bible, to say that the Bible is silent about um, evidences of genuine salvation is really to not be honest, right? Because the Bible does talk about these things. Is there a difference? And so that's the question I want to pose to you tonight. I know this may seem just like splitting hairs or you know, maybe not real important to you, but I think it is important. Is there a difference between somebody who says they're saved, they're trying to live for God, they're trying to do the right, they want to do right, and, 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 but yet they struggle with sin in their life? Is there a difference between that and then the person that I think Paul's talking about here that just continues in sin, lives in it, and, and, just, and, and, and almost like a pig in mud, just wallers around in it, and that, that's what they enjoy. That's their lifestyle and they have chosen sin not as something they struggle with, but they've chosen sin as a lifestyle. And they're open, and, and, and they're unrepentant, and they're unashamed um, about that kind of life. Is there a difference? I would say yes. That's what I say. But what does the Bible say? Let's go to Colossians chapter 3 just real quick. And I want to point out something. And we'll be in Colossians 3 several times throughout the next couple of weeks because there's a lot that corresponds to Romans 6. But just for this evening, I want to point out really one verse in Colossians 3. Um, we're going to jump in. Let's, let's, just, let's just cut into about verse number 5. Uh, Colossians 3, 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Now, how many of you got members on the earth? Okay. All right. I hope so. I hope you don't have a leg or something floating around in space somewhere. Your members, that's your body, your flesh. You got to mortify, you know what mortify means, right? You got to put it to death. All right. I thought we were dead, but we got to put stuff to death. Oh, man, this is going to be fun, isn't it? Mortify your members which are upon the earth. And then he gives us uh, the, uh, the sins that are associated with our flesh fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. That's why God is going to judge uh, lost people, right? Sin in their life. That's the kind of stuff that we have to put to death. We have to, we have to crucify this flesh, right? Uh, so this is an admonition to saved people. How many of y'all would agree with that? Mortify, because listen, somebody's dead in sin. They don't have to mortify. Listen, they're already dead. In sin, not dead to sin, but dead in sin. There's a difference. Uh, they're already controlled, dominated by the power of sin in their life. You and I, we are commanded as Christians to mortify this kind of sin. So what that means is, is that means there is potential for everyone. I don't care how saved you are. I don't care how long you've been saved. That list we just read in verse number 5, there is potential that any saved person could commit any of those things if they fail to mortify their members which are upon the earth. If you let your flesh run amok, you are liable to do any and all of these things right here. Does everybody believe that? So there is 
the committing of a sin. There is a, a believer that is struggling with his sanctification, struggling with sin. Mortify that. But look what he said in verse number 7. He said, In the which ye also walked sometime when ye, what? Lived in them. Do you see that? He said that your past reality was that you used to live in these things. He said, now, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with these things. He said, but you're not what you used to be. You don't live in those things anymore because Christians don't. And when I use the word Christian, I don't want you to think I'm, because uh, some people use that a little sneakily, if that's a word. Is that an adverb, sneakily? You can be saved but not be a Christian. I don't, you, I don't do that. Some people do. I don't do that. Brother Sammy, he, liked it. He, he would say that sometimes. I don't do that. A Christian is somebody that follows Christ. Okay. Now, I, I don't, and somebody said, well, you're, there's like levels of being saved. You know, you're saved and then there's Christians and there's like full on out, you know, John the Baptist disciples or whatever. You know, just crazy for Jesus. You're saved or you're lost. You're a Christian or you're not. That, that's what I believe. So is, can a Christian live in that? Well, he said that's past tense. You used to live in it. You walked in it and you lived in it. That's where you used to live. And so the, this is an exhortation of believers not to commit sin, but it also acknowledges the fact that these believers do not live in those sins any longer. Why? Because the dynamic changed when we got saved. Listen, if you don't get anything else, get this. Here's the main point of all this in, in, in our text in Romans 6. Our relationship to sin changed the moment we got saved. It changed, okay? Now, I didn't say that we're not sinning. And, of course, you don't think I'm saying that. I've made all efforts to let you know that we're not perfect until we get to heaven. That's glorification. But our relationship to sin has changed. We are dead to sin. We are, we are, we are dead, the Bible talks about. And I'm going to focus more on that next week. Uh, we're dead to sin. That's what he says. Verse number two, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin, people that are saved are dead to sin, how can you live any longer there? Whatever that means, that being dead to sin, and we might touch on it a little bit, but really we'll focus on it a little more in the weeks to come. Whatever that means, dead to sin, it has an impact on how you live your life. Because how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It's incompatible. It doesn't work. So there is a distinction between a believer uh, struggling with sin and a believer or a professed believer continuing or living in sin. Now I want you to go to 1 John chapter 3 with me. And we're going to settle in here just for a few minutes, okay? Um, and I want to look at a few verses here in 1 John chapter 3 that I think, to me, this is the main text on this issue of continuing in sin and what that means, what the the implications of all that are. Now, 1 John 3, uh, I, know, I know that, and if there's any Bible students in here, and I know there's Bible students in here, and I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. It makes me study harder. Um, but there are different, uh, there are different uh, uh, interpretations of some things that's going on here in 1 John chapter 3. I know that personally because I used to hold one position, and now I hold another position on it. And I got friends on both sides uh, of the issue, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you why, obviously, why I see some things a certain way. But let's just go through the text and let's look. Let's look at it just for a minute. Look at verse number one, because I want you to see something. This is really neat here. 
uh, verse 1, man, these are great verses. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Man, can we just shout over that just for a second? Aren't you thankful for the love of God that calls you son? You are a son of God. You are in Christ. Man, what love, what love. And if you look at it, what manner of love, just do a, little, do a little word study on that right there. It means from what world is this love from? Where did this come from? This is not, this is not, from, a, this is not from around here. We've never seen it like this. It's like what the disciples said about Jesus. What manner of man is this? The winds and seas obey him. It's like, man, we ain't never seen a man like this, okay? That's the kind of love that God has. Behold, what manner of love, what kind of love is this, man? that we, a bunch of sinners, would be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now notice what we just saw here in these two verses. We see justification, right? Verse 1, we're called the sons of God. Verse 2, now are we the sons of God. Right now, right now. Listen, you say, well, I don't feel like one. It don't matter if you're saved. You are right now. Listen, if you've been saved 100 years, you are a son of God. If you've been saved 3 milliseconds, you are a son of God. Now, that is positional truth. Now, justified, declared righteous, holy. Now are we a son of God. Do you see glorification? In this verse, look at verse number 2. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Now listen, I'm not like Him right now. Not completely. Uh, not even, well, I don't even want to give a percentage on that. Do you? You want to work? Let's not do that. I'm not like Him, but I will be one day. That's glorification. I'm going to be like Jesus. Perfect, spotless, perfect, just like Jesus. So we got justification in these verses. We got glorification in these verses. Now look at verse number three. What do you think is about to pop up in verse number three? Sanctification. Look what he says. And every man that hath this hope, what hope? Well, the hope we just talked about, that we're going to be like him, right? That hope. Every man that has that hope, this hope, in him, what does he do? Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Who's the he that is pure there? That's Jesus. That's the one we're trying to be like, right? It's not me trying to be like you or you trying to be like me or me just trying to be, be your best you. No, my best me ain't that great. I'm just trying to be the best version of myself I can be. Oh, that's not good, okay? Be like Jesus, okay? The best version of you is still pretty horrible, all right? So, I, but every man, now that verse, man, it's amazing. That verse right there tells you about everything you need to know about sanctification. Everything you need to know about the doctrine of sanctification, pretty much, it's packed in. That little verse right there. Number one, we know that sanctification is universal. What, that mean, what I mean by that is everybody that's saved. What does it say? And who? Every man that hath this hope in him. You know what that means? Everybody that is justified is being sanctified. Every single man. Everybody. Nobody's left out. And I said, well, they got saved, but they just never really grew. They just never really took, you know, it just, whatever. They never really got disciples. Well, Every man that hath this hope in him, if you got this hope in you, you're on a track of sanctification. 
So it tells us that it's every man. Nobody's excluded. It also tells us something about sanctification, that it is progressive and it is continual. Do you notice what it says? Every man that hath this hope in him, what does he do? Purifieth himself. What does that mean? It's a continual process. Continual thing. It never, it never ends. It never ends. We're becoming more, coming more pure, coming more like as he is pure, more like Jesus. It also tells me that sanctification is a cooperative thing. Because what does it say? He purifieth what? Himself. You say, well, I thought, I, thought, uh, I thought God is the one that purifies us. Well, of course, I mean, that's definitely an aspect of it. But there is an aspect of sanctification where you got to do this. Even, now, don't throw a songbook at me, but even salvation is like that. You, I mean, you have to confess with your mouth. You have to believe in your heart. That's not works. That's repenting from works. But uh, God, we don't believe in irresistible grace. We don't believe in God just you know, saying, hey, I'm about to save you, you know, dragging people to the altar. There's a, there's a cooperation. Sanctification is like that. Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, even talking about salvation, he got up and he said, save yourselves. That's what he said. Look at Acts chapter 2. Save yourselves. So he said, well, I thought, I thought God said, I, thought, I didn't think you could save yourself. Peter got up and preached, save yourselves. <laughs> you know what that means is? If you know what's good for you, call on God. <laughs> it's like, hey... Here's the life raft. Grab hold to it. Grab on to it, you know. Save yourself. Purify yourself. It's the same way with sanctification. It is cooperative. You purify yourself. You purify yourself. So really, that's all the aspects of sanctification. Everybody is progressive. It's continual. It's cooperative. And there's a purification. And so there's the idea here of sanctification. This text here, verses 1 through 10, is really what I want to zero just for the last few minutes we have here. It's one of identification. In fact, the, 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 theme, the theme of 1 John is knowing, right? If, 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 has anybody ever said, if you're down your salvation, read the book of 1 John? I've told, that to, I've told that to a bunch of people. I told that to a gentleman I talked to on the phone yesterday. You know, he said he's under conviction, wasn't sure about, you know, just a little confused. I said, man, if you've got a Bible anywhere, get out, read 1 John. Read first John. Why? Because it's all about knowing. It's about discerning salvation. Am I saved? And then it's even, it even extends not just us, but extends on how to be aware and be careful about people that say they're saved, but they're not. That's going on in 1 John as well. He's talking, who's a liar? But he that denies Jesus is the Christ. All these kind of things. Watch out. He's not, he's a liar. If somebody says they have no sin, they're a liar. If somebody says Jesus is not the Christ, they're a liar. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, don't believe every spirit. Try the spirit. See the weather of God. 1 John is a discernment book. It's a discernment epistle. That's what it's about. Okay? And so there it is. Now this text, let, let me read it. Let me just read it. And then let me give you three different interpretations of it. Okay? And then I'll tell you the right one and why everybody else is wrong. All right. Verse number 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested, as Jesus, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. 
Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, this text. Now, there's some tough verses in here. I mean, I mean, you just read verse number 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Well, that makes me swallow real hard, don't that? Don't that make you? Does that verse just say, if you're saved, you don't sin? Man, I hope that's not what it says. Does he say, and he cannot, and and even go, man, take it a step. Not only does he not, he cannot sin. Wow, how about that? That's interesting right there. So there's there's three different ways you can look at this text right here. Number one, you can look at it and say this text is teaching uh, sinless perfection, that when you get saved, you don't sin anymore. Okay. Uh, The only problem with that is John kind of blew that out of the water in chapter 1, didn't he? In fact, he said, if uh, you say you have not sinned, you're a liar. And if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar, all right? Uh, and, and then he talks to us Christians, if we confess our sin, what does he do? He's faithful just to forgive us. What does that mean? That means Christian sin. And then what do we do? We confess, and, and, and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleanseth us from all sin. So we can walk and fellowship with him. First John 1, it's about fellowship, right? Okay. So it can't be sinless perfection, right? I think we all agree on that. So then there's two other things, and this is where most everybody I know, they fall on one side or the other on this. There's either uh, that this text is talking about the distinction between the flesh and the spirit. And what I mean by that is that when he says that somebody, whoever's born of God doth not commit sin, he cannot sin, what that's talking about is that's talking about the inner man, right? There's an inner man inside of you that cannot sin, okay? Now, let me stop and say this. I believe that. I believe there's a, there's a saved part of me. There's a Spirit of God inside of me. He doesn't sin. He's perfect, right? Uh, no, no doubt about that. I, I believe that. I believe that. Um, but I just don't believe that's what this text is teaching. And let me tell you why. The other view of this text is that uh, it's incompatible for somebody who is truly saved to continue in a lifestyle of sin. I believe that's what this text is teaching, and let me tell you why. This is the most, if, if that's true, this is the most clear text about that. Um, and I just wrote down a couple of reasons why I believe that. Number one, it fits with the flow of the letter. This whole letter is about gives us tests of salvation. How do you know if you're saved? How do you know if somebody's saved? There's the doctrine test. That's the first test that's in here. What does that mean? That means, what do you say about Jesus? If somebody's wrong about Jesus, they're not saved. Now, you can be wrong about a lot of things to be saved. You can be wrong about eschatology, right? If you believe in a post-tribulation or amillennial or whatever, you can still be saved. You'll be wrong. You're wrong, but you can still be saved. But there's one doctrine you can't get wrong and still be saved, and that's who's Jesus. you got to have that. And so there's the doctrine test, like over and over in chapter 2, if you got your Bible open, you can look over there. Uh, who is a liar? Verse 22, 222. 
But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. Now notice all the whosoevers. There's whosoevers all throughout this epistle. In our text that we read right away, he's talking about somebody. That's a somebody. Whoever fits this category, whoever, fill in the blank, whosoever, that's a blank there, put somebody's name there. If they fit, the, if the shoe fits, then they're not saved. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you're a liar. You're not saved. They're a false prophet, okay? They're a false teacher. They're a false convert, okay? You got to believe right. So there's a doctrine. There's the love test in the book of John. We know that we pass from death unto life. How? We love the brethren. And then read all through chapter 4 and chapter 5. Whosoever, you know, uh, loves God, loves all those that are begotten by him. I don't have time to look up all these verses, but it's, all, it's, all, it's scattered all throughout. There's the love test. If you're truly saved, you not only love God, but you love your brother. You love the brethren. If you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a what? Liar. Okay, so there we go. John's throwing these tests out here. But then there's another test all throughout the book of 1 John, and that is the righteousness test. Do you live righteously? Do you do righteousness? And that is all throughout the book. In fact, when it's in our text that we read here, little children, verse 7, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Uh, he that committeth sin is of the devil. So you have all these things here, and it goes all the way, and you can even look in the last part of the, uh, last part of the book. Um, uh, in chapter 5, it, it, it closes out. Uh, verse 18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. And that wicked one toucheth him not. So there's, it's, the righteousness test is all throughout the book. First John. So it makes sense for this to be about practice. The other, here, let me give you another reason why I think it's talking about that, is because the eth, E-T-H, the eth, that's a continual thing. It's all throughout this text here. Whosoever commit, what, eth, committeth sin, transgresseth also the law. Uh, that, that denotes a continual action, a constant, an unbroken pattern of sin. Verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Uh, and it's all throughout this. Now, you'll note in verse number 9, there's the word committed. Don't have a committeth on it. You see that? And that's where people think, well, that's got to be talking about the spirit man. That's got to be talking about the inner man. But I think in context, it's easy to read that verse. How many of y'all still, everybody okay? I know this is overload, but let me just overload you for a second. Verse 9, yeah, I think it's easy to read that verse and realize that he's talking about committing sin in the same context that he's been talking about. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin in the same manner that he's been speaking of in that continual action. Now, if you don't like that, go over to chapter 5. We just read that verse. In verse 18, and he's going to say the same thing, but he puts the F on it. We know that whosoever is born of God, here it is, sinneth not. So I don't think that's a contradiction. I think that is a clarification at the end of the verse. Uh, I'm going to skip over this because I'm going to skip. I got another point here, but I'm going to skip over this one because I'm really going to hit it next week. But verse number five, verse number eight, he talks about he was manifested to take away sins. That is one reason why a Christian cannot continue in sin because that's the whole reason Jesus came and died on the cross. The death of Christ makes it impossible for a believer to continue in sin. That's the point of Romans 6. Okay? That's the point of 1 Peter 2.24. That's the point of Titus 2.14. Okay? And we'll look at those texts next week. But here's what put it in the coffin for me. Because I always believe, well, that's talking about the inner man. He, he, he's perfect. 
My flesh sins, but my inside doesn't sin. I always believed that because that's what I was taught. Here's what happened. I got ruined. What happened was I studied the Bible for myself. All right, that'll mess you up. I taught through 1 John in Sunday school years ago. Some of y'all may remember that. And I started, when you start in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and you're going, there is a flow, there is a logical consistency that goes throughout that text. And when I got to this text, I said, that just doesn't fit. That idea that I've always had, it does not fit. You can't start in chapter 1, verse 1 and keep a logical, consistent flow. And verse 10 is what, it, it messed me up. Verse 10 messed me up. When I got to verse 10, I said, I've been wrong all these years, all these low, these... 27 years or whatever. I was like 27 years old, so, you know, wasn't that old. Verse 10. In this, hold on. In what? He's talking about people that live right and people that live wicked. Righteousness and wicked. In this, the way people live, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Let me tell you the word that messed me up. The word manifest threw me for a loop. That's what changed everything for me. Manifest. What does the word manifest means? mean? It means open, obvious, plain. John is not talking about internal realities. He's talking about external realities that prove internal reality. He's talking about what, how do we know openly, obviously, plain? How do we know, how do we know, how is it manifested on the outside that somebody is truly saved. Well, one of the ways is how do they live? And that's all throughout the book of 1 John. He uses that word manifest in verse 19 of chapter number 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, why? That they might be made, what? Manifest. That way we know who they are. That's why they left. If they were one of us, no doubt they would have continued with us. They would have continued in righteousness with us. But they went out. Why? That it might be what? Manifest. That everybody could see it on the outside. And when I saw that right there, the children of God are manifest. Here's how you know on the outside who's saved and who's lost. Saved people cannot continue in sin they cannot live in sin. Do they struggle? Yes. Do they stumble? Yeah. Will they make colossal ones? Absolutely. But there will not be an unbroken pattern of sin in their life. That pattern of sin will always be broken up with what? Repentance. That's what breaks up sin. Fall on your face. A just man falleth seven times, and what does he do? He rises up again. Yeah, he falls a bunch, but he keeps getting up. He keeps getting up. Listen. It's not the absence of sin that is the mark of a Christian. It is the presence of repentance that is the mark of a Christian. When you get saved, you don't, you don't, you, you don't repent one time and then you're done. No, you, that's when you start repenting. That's when you start these things. And that's Paul, his answer in Romans 6 is, shall we continue in sin? He said, God forbid... That means, that just phrase just simply means it doesn't exist. This kind of grace that you speak of, that you slander, it doesn't exist. And, and, and it also, God forbid, means, and may it never come into existence. May it never be that way. Paul uses that phrase back in Romans 6. You can go back there and I'm done. He uses that phrase ten times in the book of Romans and it always means absolutely impossible. 
No way. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. No way. And why can't that happen? Why can't a Christian continue in sin? Well, it's because of a death that happened 2,000 years ago. You say, whose is that? Mine. Mine. You thought I was going to say Jesus, didn't you? Mine. My death happened 2,000 years ago. You say, yeah, but you're not yet 50 years old. (laughs) My death happened. How did my death happen 2,000 years ago? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because when I got saved, let me tell you what God did. He put me in Christ. Salvation doesn't happen in time. Salvation is something that happens in eternity. And when I got saved, I got put in Christ. And what does that mean? That means when Christ died, I died. When He was buried, I was buried. When He got up, I got up. If you don't believe that, you finish reading Romans 6. And it's all right there. I was baptized in Christ, totally immersed in Christ. It has nothing to do with water, nothing to do. There ain't no water in that verse. Romans 6 is dry. There ain't, no, there ain't a drop of water in Romans chapter 6. It's a dry verse. I've been baptized into Christ. I've been immersed. I've been put into Christ. And when I did, I died to sin. I right now, Chris Simpson right now, is dead to sin. I'm dead to it. Our relationship, my relationship with sin, my relationship status with sin is if we we're on Facebook, we put complicated. We ain't together. Whew. But I hate to say it, we certainly ain't apart. You say, I thought you said you were dead to sin. Oh, yeah. I'm dead to it, but it ain't dead to me. If you go over to chapter number seven, we'll just sneak peek at one verse and then I'm done. Verse 17. Paul said, it's no more I that do it, but sin that what? Oh, it's dwelling in me. Oh, man, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Man, I'm dead to it, but it's living in me. (laughs) It's living in me. But can I tell you something? Don't ever confuse these two things right here, and I'm done. There's a difference between sin living in you and you living in sin. Those aren't the same thing. Somebody says they're saved, but they live in sin. They can live in sin. They can live in total rebellion against the Word of God. And just does about, oh, grace, grace, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Listen, that, that's more than just sin living in you. That's you living in sin. Salvation will totally change your relationship with sin. I am dead in what sense? I am dead in the sense that I am not dominated by the power of sin any longer. I am not subject to its authority. Before you get saved, you have to do what sin tells you to do. After you get saved, you don't have to live that way anymore. You have been freed. That's the last verse we left at verse 7. He that is dead is what? Freed from sin. You've been set free. And the first step to freedom is knowing that you've been set free. There's four words in Romans 6, and we're going to go through these. There's no reckon, yield, obey. These are the key. Those are the key to not just having the freedom, but enjoying freedom. Because you know there's a difference. Paul told the church at Galatians, he said, uh, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty 
Wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Some people have been set free by God, but they go back to the prison cell and they sit down in jail. You bondage to sin, but you don't have to. See, that's the thing. When you get saved, you don't have to live that way. There is a freedom. You don't have, sin doesn't have to drag you around anymore. You're free. You're free. God help us to live in that reality. We'll stand together.